the summer before I started seventh grade, my mom married my stepfather, and we moved from Salinas, California, to Carmel, which is a big cultural change. And as part of that transition, I changed schools from the public school system to a private school. The school was in the Carmel Mission, the actual like old mission right there in Carmel. And as you might guess, it was a Catholic school. As a cradle Presbyterian, I was in the vast minority at this school. I was, in fact, one of two Protestants in the entire like middle school portion of the school. The, the other one was a girl named Kelly, who was also new to the school. And out of sensitivity to our religious traditions, which are clearly different, <laughs> the traditions of these foreigners uh, in their midst, the school paired us together for all faith-based activities, which meant that, so as our entire class, as the entire middle school was going to, uh, to confession, they sat us together on a pew, in a pew, like halfway through the church, just sitting there alone uh, for the entirety while every single, per- oh, we waited for every single person to go through this long tradition. Presumably we were, <laughs> we were seated in this fashion so that we could ponder our eternal damnation. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but I, actually, I actually really enjoyed that time. I loved sitting there in that old church, smelling the old smells, looking at the old architecture, feeling the light coming in from the courtyard there at the mission. It was beautiful. And there's a, there are fountains out there. You could hear them coming in, like a trickling as everybody was going about their, their confession time. I also did a lot of praying during that time. I really enjoyed being in the church and having some solitude. It was probably a time, one of the times where I started really, really practicing, really developing my prayer life. I also thought a lot about the differences between these traditions. Like, what was it that had, that had, that had made you know, these folks come from, this, from one source and express it in such a different way? Um, it was also during that time that I learned the Hail Mary, uh, the prayer. And at first it made me a little uncomfortable that I was, was praying to an intercessor. Uh, but I, I, I love those words. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. There was a feminine affirmation in those words that was totally absent in the prayers of the churches that I grew up in. Totally absent. And this gospel passage today is all about that feminine affirmation. It is a model of feminine strength and feminine agency. Two amazing women who are both pregnant and both in crazy circumstances, right? One that was well past the age of uh, childbearing and another who was, it seemed, too early. But both partner with the Spirit to change the course of human history. Notice for a second the role of men in this story. 
There's Zechariah, Elizabeth's husband, who is silenced. He actually cannot talk. He is struck mute by the divine. Talk about an ironic role reversal. And then there's Joseph, who is pretty much absent from this story. He just barely stuck around to play a role, right? It took an act of God to keep him involved in this story. But Elizabeth and Mary are the model of faith for a new people. Every year during this time, this is kind of the moment where, where I pause and give thanks for my wife, who is Mary Elizabeth, uh, which is it's so much fun that, that my wife's name is the culmination of this, this moment. It's fun for me because she, my wife, is a, as you guys know, is a midwife. Um, and it's such an amazing moment to, to have these two women who are both pregnant together, you know, singing this joyous song. Um, it's, it's just a beautiful, beautiful moment. But this, this moment, this song, it, it is essential to what develops into the Christian faith. Yes, it gives us that prayer, the Hail Mary, which is not just a football play, apparently. It gives us that, that Ave Maria, you know, the, all those beautiful songs that come from this passage. Now, some of us may not love the first line of this prayer, or of this passage. Hail Mary, Mother of God. Have you guys heard this before? Do you guys even know? Hail Mary, Mother of God. It does seem a little bit strange to many of us who, who might have be from more of the Protestant tradition. Um, but uh, it's a really, really powerful thing in the history of the church It comes from an aspect of feminist theology that stretches all the way back to the very earliest days of the Christian faith. The phrase we interpret as mother of God is the Greek term theotokos or theotokos. Theos meaning God and takos meaning childbirth or offspring or that moment of birth. It's, It's a close Paraphrase to she who is the, the one who bears God, the one who brings God into, you know, who births God. Now, it can be, that term maybe to us sounds a little bit weird, right? It sounds like we're saying mother of the eternal God, and that's not a new thing that people get kind of thrown off by that early, early phrase. Um, in, around the, the fourth century, there was uh, a conflict um, between a guy named Nestorius and a guy named Cyril of Alexandria. And they were just, they, they typified what was going on in the church way back in the day. And, and basically, Nestorius said that, oh, Mary could not have been the Theotokos, the, the mother of God, the, the bearer of God. Mary was the Christotakos, the bearer of Christ alone. There's a lot of fine, fine, there are a lot of fine points in this, but the, the gist of it is that um, around 431, there was a council in the town of Ephesus that uh, looked at how, what it meant for Christ to be fully divine, and it all came down to this 
word, this mother of God phrase. It, and it changed the course of history. What they wanted to say was that Jesus was fully divine and always divine. So Mary played this role of bearing the full divinity within her. Point being, Mary took on a huge role. And she didn't just bear the burden. She was not an incidental character whose fate was thrust upon her. Mary is the model of faith for her son. To understand this, to understand how she modeled her faith for her son, we need to look at this Magnificat, this this beautiful song that we just read, right? In my opinion, this is the best song in the entire Bible. The best song because of its content. It has all aspects of the best parts of what we talk about in the Bible. All these things that burst into song because they're overflowing with emotion. It has this, my soul will magnify the Lord. Such a powerful statement, such a powerful inspiration that I see what I've been given and I'm going to spread it out with others. Give it, up, give it away. His gratitude, his mercy, is the promise of Abraham. It has the, the, the servant Israel, the history of Israel, the, the activity of God from generation to generation. It is filled with social justice. Listen to these lines. The bringing down the powerful, lifting up the lowly, scattering the proud. But this song, as beautiful as it is, and how it encompasses all of those emotions, all of those traditions, all of that history, it is not a new invention. It harkens back to the song of Miriam after the crossing of the Red Sea. And more famously, it mirrors the song of Hannah at the birth of Samuel. My point is that this is not just one woman singing. It is all of human history expressed through one miraculous moment with one miraculous woman. The woman who not only bore and birthed Jesus, but also nurtured and raised him. The woman who imparted her faith, the values of this song, to the son who would embody those values. To the son who would be the change she wanted to see. Amen. Amen.